Uh, now, it's important that I think we all need to develop the skill to really understand the letters in their context and read them. The letters are positioned in the whole narrative of the Bible. That's the first context. Where is it? How is it placed? What's the whole backstory? All of the references, allusions, and the background that the writers are coming from in the Old Testament history, in the Jewish scriptures. Um, they're also in a very specific time and place in human history, in the first century, in the Roman Empire, in the cultural uh, places that the church groups were in. And then these letters are letters specifically written to a very specific group of people with issues that the apostle is dealing with, that he's heard of from their church or issues that he's seen and as he's instructing them and teaching them. So reading a whole letter in that context is a challenge because we want to take every verse and apply it to our lives, but they're not always every single one meant for you in the way that they're written for that church. We don't have a lot of temples to Athena or Aphrodite in Lancaster City, but there are still lessons to learn when the apostles are pointing out how to engage in their culture. It's really, it's really more exciting when you can understand that the letters are like a little bit of a historical record that we can glimpse into what it was like to try to live in the first century church. The very first generation of the followers of Jesus as they figured out what all of this means and how the context of the Jewish scriptures and the world around them came together in the reality of Jesus. And as they grappled with the challenges and spoke with each other and debated and came to the solutions that they found, we see that so many of them are still relevant today, that it's not that different. The cultural application and situations might be different, but it's inspiring to realize that Paul was Paul. He, wasn't, he wouldn't want a statue on the top of the hill in Rome to himself, I don't believe. He was Paul. He was a person who had struggles, um, but he was led by God to help shepherd these church groups and develop them. So today we'll spend a little bit of time in Colossians, but we'll actually read a lot of scriptures from some of his other letters um, on a specific theme. So I'm not going to read all of them in all of their context, <laughs> so I'll break that first rule of understanding them, but I'll challenge you if you hear some of these verses to go back and read them. Read them in the letter. Read them in the context. Understand what he was trying to teach them and what he was trying to say to them. And it's an interesting challenge because being a letter where we only have one part of the conversation, it is like eavesdropping on a phone call. And you're trying to figure out what was the other person saying, what's going on here? We're piecing it together. Um, so the first, the first part, there's a little bit of a lesson that I just feel in my heart um, as we step through a few, uh, a few sections of this morning's lesson. Um, that I just want to cover, even though I'm only going to read individual verses from letters that Paul wrote and a few other apostles wrote, there's a theme that they all carried that does show up across many letters. Um, sometimes in one of Paul's letters, it just shows up over and over. It's a theme that he's covering. So take this as the first step in our logical progression today as we study the word. Um, it's a little bit of a rapid fire. But I think whenever we go through these, it becomes hard to refute that the apostles probably really meant what they were saying, <laughs> that they weren't referring to esoteric concepts, that they're really literally telling you this is what you should not do and this is what you should do. Um, so as I've grown in my faith a little bit and as I've uh, grappled in my own life and in the world around me, I'm starting to feel like I really despise the phrase, we're all just sinners. 
because I feel like that's an incomplete statement. I feel like it doesn't cover the whole story. And I feel like we use it in the way that Paul often has to go out of his way, I think, to say, no, no, no. (laughs) This isn't what I mean by freedom or liberty in Christ. Um, I think that we should really try to recalibrate our thinking to say we're all former sinners. And even if that means sometimes we err, we are not sinners. And it doesn't seem like Paul ever wants to call us sinners. There's a lot of times where they say, you used to be like this. We used to do this, but now we're doing new things. Now we're looking at other things. So these are just a bunch of verses to challenge myself to say it's not okay to just accept where I am. And so I'm just going to go through all of these verses, rapid fire, See if you can keep up. Lisa's not going to be bringing them up on the screen, um, but just think about them. And go read these, go read these books, uh, these letters that Paul wrote, and see them in the context around them and try to apply them um, with that understanding to your own life. So let's just listen to Paul as he writes uh, some of these letters. In Romans uh, 6, he said, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Later in the chapter, he says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? He continues, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The thing that I want to remind myself when I'm reading these letters that Paul wrote, he wasn't writing these to the priestesses at the temple of Aphrodite. He wasn't writing these to the Muslims who were traveling through the area. He wasn't writing these to the pagan worshipers. He was writing these to people who had chosen to follow Jesus. In chapter 8, Still in Romans, he says, Then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father." Now, in Romans specifically, there was a bit of a division developing between Jews who were returning to Rome, or Jews who had been exiled returning to Rome, finding the Gentile church that had been there during the Jewish exile, and the debate was over following the Jewish law or not. I see a lot of similarities in that debate over following Jewish law and following my own law, the law of the flesh, the law of sin, because the... The law that the, Jew, that the Jewish people followed was really a law of flesh. Um, God gave it to them to provide protection from their own flesh, from their own sinful desires. And so even though I'm not under any, any um, requirement to follow the Jewish law, I am still very much susceptible to being someone who really should probably have it <laughs> because I want to follow my own desires. Um, In Corinthians, in the first letter, it was probably the second letter Paul wrote to them, but the first one that we have, in uh, chapter 5, he said, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? 
Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? He's talking about the church. He's talking about the people in the church uh, struggling with these things. He continues, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In chapter 10, he said, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And then in the first letter Peter wrote that we have, he said, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In the letter to Galatians that Paul wrote, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In Ephesians, if you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. He continues in Ephesians, I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In Titus, um, we hear yourself, ourselves, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. James wrote, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. First Peter, also, uh, Peter also wrote in First Peter, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He continues in chapter 4, Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drunken parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. And then for in 1 John Verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So I think the burden would be on me to really try hard to say that the apostles didn't really mean this that it's really okay to do the things I used to do because I have liberty. <laughs> um, James gives us a little window there where he says, if we look into the perfect law, the law of liberty that Jesus gave us, and persevere, let me find that verse, we will be one who doesn't forget, but a doer who acts, and will be blessed for that doing. But... As a person living in this flesh, this all sounds like I can accept it intellectually, but I have a hard time really doing it, and I have a hard time living it, and I fight the battles, and I've often fought these battles, and I think, I think there's, there's an illusion that I've accepted that I want to talk about today. We've all, um, probably a lot of us have seen the movie The Matrix, the whole story that the reality that the characters were experiencing wasn't really reality. It was an illusion that was pulled over their eyes. Um, in a lot of ways, I think our existence in this world is engaging in an illusion. Um, Jesus tried to open our eyes, I believe, and tried to help us to see that restored space where God intended for this world to be a continuation of his heavenly kingdom. But we broke that. We separated it. We clouded it and, and corrupted it. But Jesus has brought us back to that place. He's, he's pulling that heavenly realm back into this physical world through us. But I feel like we live, and the things that we see, we believe are, is, are real. The things that we touch, we believe are real. What we need to learn is that they're not as real as we think. Um, and so I fight this battle, recognizing these things. And, you know, to me what stands out is... Uh, you know, I guess in a polite church, you might skip some of these verses that were in the apostles' letters. Um, how often do they talk about sexual immorality? Mm -hmm. 
well, I thought that was a new thing from like the 60s marketing and advertising, and it's, I thought that was new. I didn't, you know, it doesn't, we, we pretend that these things are new experiences, but it was pretty bad in the Roman Empire. It was pretty rough. Um, so it's not something that's new, but the challenge is for me to look at this whole picture and say, how, why do I still fight these battles then? Why? And... Um, the illusion, I think, is that we do not completely accept or live as if the battle has been won. Death has actually been defeated. In 2 Corinthians, Paul makes the, comment, makes the comment that Christ was made, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. So I want us to picture this moment in, in history and in reality that Jesus was given the full presence of God in, in his physical body. And then he, who was perfect, adopted our sin. Paul said he became sin. Where he knew no sin, he was pure, he was holy, he was righteous, but he took that from us. And then he was killed. Not against his will, he willfully presented himself as the sacrifice and offered to be killed on our behalf to pay the penalty and this is, a, this is such a beautiful instance of the enemy not really knowing the rules of the game because it feels like we killed the Son of God. This is a tremendous victory, but that was the very tool and the very act by which restoration would occur. But if we picture, he became our sin, he was killed and died. Um, it says, I think we'll read the verse later, the, the, really the mark of sin and the sting of sin is death. The fact that our bodies corrupt and fall apart and the world is always in entropy and collapse around us is the mark of sin, is the mark of destruction. And Jesus took that. He adopted it for us. He experienced it. But here's the thing I think we forget. He defeated it. He took it and defeated it and destroyed it. He obliterated death. He removed it. We hear that refrain. We sing it, death, where is thy sting? He has conquered death. What we experience today as our bodies fail and fall is an echo of the past, the time that suffices for, for the time when we didn't have the hope, for the time before Christ conquered, conquered death and conquered sin. He has conquered death. You, though you may feel that you are subject to it, are not truly. Because Jesus, I think, always challenged us to look below the surface and realize if my body fails, Paul lives this out as he's beaten and persecuted, that he says it's not really that important because there's something deeper, there's something bigger. And to realize that Christ defeated death, in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always bounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The victory has already been won. When I engage in the world and I make choices to do the things that I don't want to do, I am choosing to live in this illusion that I don't have a way out. It says, right, we just read the scripture from the apostles. God gives you a way out. God gives you the strength. You can endure it. 
It's, and you're not that unique. You're not the first person who's experienced any specific temptation or moment that you will find. It is common demand, but God has provided a way out. We were once foolish, but now we walk in wisdom and walk in step with the Spirit. So living in this place where we know that we should be different, I should be different than I was, and I know that death has been defeated, that I should not fear, and I should not live in acceptance of constant loss, but I should be living in a moment of victory. We, I think this calls the image to me that we've studied in the story of creation and recreation and the themes. God has restored the priesthood that he intended for Adam and Eve. We're not, I guess the challenge that I would say is that he's called us to be those priests and he's called us to do something for him. We'll explore that a little bit more in the last point. But before we do that, I do want to read the letter to Colossians because some of these things that we just talked about and the theme that we'll pick up in a moment show up in the letter to Colossae. So Paul wrote this letter from prison to a church that he'd never visited. Um, a fellow believer named Epaphras, who was from Colossae, started the church and apparently had made a visit with Paul and was telling Paul about the church. And so Paul wrote this letter with his with his, uh, with his fellow workers, they wrote this letter to send to Colossae to encourage them to stay true to their original faith, to not enslave themselves to the Jewish law because their faith was separate from its requirements. So I did, it's, uh, it may seem like a, a, a fun little gimmick, but I did print out the letter to Colossae here as a scroll. And I found it was actually helpful to me because when I'm reading the Bible, the individual pages just kind of all blend together with the other pieces. And then if I'm reading it in my app, on my tablet, or my computer, again, you just keep scrolling, and it's, and it's endless. But printing it out like this helped me actually see the one single letter that was delivered to the church. Now this, if I encourage you to, to learn a little bit more. The Bible Project has a good podcast series about the New Testament letters. We watched the videos last week talking about what it what the endeavor really was like to write a letter to a church. And this is a big deal, a lot of expense, a lot of time and preparation. But in most cases, it's even referenced literally in one of the, uh, one of the letters. Once this letter was prepared, it would be given to a trusted, a trusted partner in ministry who would deliver this to the church in Colossae. And then in a meeting like this, that person who had been coached on the points and the presentation of the letter would deliver it to the church verbally. And then they would have this copy. And we are blessed with some of the most, some of the largest quantity of ancient Roman letters or, or letters from that era in these New Testament letters. Not a lot survived. Most of them are. Um, next to Cicero, Paul's probably one of the most prolific letter writers whose letters survive today. Because we would get this letter and then we may have a wealthy patron who could transcribe copies of it, have it transcribed so that we could deliver it to other people or keep copies. Um, at the end of this letter, they even say to take it to another church and read it, um, and also get the letter I sent to them and read that in your church. Uh, so it's really just, it's an interesting way to think about how these letters were delivered. So I'm just going to read it, and I want you to listen. Um, we're not going to bring it up on the screen. Just listen as if you're hearing it for the first time. Mark in your mind the things you want to go back and look at and ask questions about, but specifically be listening for these themes about walking away from what we were and the next theme that we will cover about living in fullness in God, living in the fullness of God. There's also a beautiful poem that you'll recognize in here that Paul wrote. So this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ. 
Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. We always pray for you, and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with his glorious power, so you will have the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to the people who live in light. For he has rescued you from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before everything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled himself, you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached overall, all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church and by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God, perfect in their relationship in Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. 
In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rulers, rules are only shadows of the reality to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they've had a vision about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's vile desires. Since you have been raised to new life in Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful earthy, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, or evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave, or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. 
Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear for the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done, for God has no favorites. Masters, be just and be fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us, too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I'm here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Tychicus will give you the full report of how I'm getting along. He's a beloved brother and faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. I am also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that's happening here. Aristarchus, who is in prison with me, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. Jesus, the one we call Justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jewish believers among my co-workers. They are working with me here for the kingdom of God, and what a comfort they have been. Epaphras, a member of your own fellowship and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. He always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, fully confident that you are following the whole will of God. I can assure you that he prays hard for you and also for the believers in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved doctor, sends his greetings, as does Damas. Please give my greetings to our brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. After you've read this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea so they can read it too. And you should read the letter I wrote to them. And say to Archippus, be sure to carry out the ministry the Lord gave you. Here's my greeting and my own handwriting, Paul. Remember my chains. May God's grace be with you. To me, it's really illuminating to read the whole letter and just hear that Paul is covering specific challenges they had. Paul has a specific relationship with them, even though it's developed through third parties. Um, but to feel the love and the compassion that he has for them speaks to me. But there are a few, a few spaces in there. Really, what, what sparked my thought for this lesson is this verse. Now, I read the New Living Translation so that it felt a little more like we were reading a letter that was written to us in our, in our uh, prose style. Um, so it reads here in verse... Scrolls are a little unwieldy. <laughs> um, early on, he says... Once I find it here. 
Yeah, he talks about uh, in verse 24 of chapter 1, I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for this body, the church. Now, in the ESV and a lot of other translations, the words that Paul really uses there say that he is completing what is lacking in Christ's affliction, which, of course, from a theological standpoint, sounds a little startling. Say, Paul, I know that you're a great letter writer. I know you're a great founder of the church, but you didn't die for my sins. <laughs> you don't have the position that can earn me my salvation. But what Paul seems to be developing in this theme and that we hear in these other places where he talks about living for Christ and God living in us um, is that he's developing the theme that Christ's life is expressed through our lives now. So in that same way um, that Adam and Eve were the priests, they were the representative of God on earth until they broke the relationship, they severed it, Jesus then came to restore that relationship, and God dwelled fully, as we hear in the poem that Paul wrote, God was pleased to complete him. The, the word fullness there, the Greek word that's used means completion or filling up, um, that he put his whole presence into Jesus. When Jesus ascended, he gave his spirit to all of his believers. And so we are in that space now. We are filling that role. But for me, when I think back to the first part of the lesson, all of the things that we should be doing or not be doing. And then I try to reconcile that with the knowledge that, you know, that, that the battle has been won, that I don't really have an excuse for living in sin. Is the term fullness of time, is that? It might be the same word. Maybe. Um, I don't think so. Um, so when I try to reconcile those two pieces together, and I realize that I've lived my life with a background maybe from, from the faith tradition that I grew up in that was very rules-based, that chose some of the Jewish laws that we still had to obey, discarded some others, added some new ones. Um, but really even my whole understanding was probably immature. So I've always had this transactional view of, of living in the fullness of God, um, that it's been backwards. So I'm going to read a few verses, uh, mostly from Paul's writings here uh, and a few from Colossians, uh, that we can talk about. Um, how I think my perspective has changed. In Colossians 1.19, we read that, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 6.19-20, he said, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In Ephesians chapter 3, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in, deceit, in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In Romans 8, you, however, are not in flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. I catch that when I read that. It's almost a little bit of an accusation in Paul's writing there. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's really a pointed uh-huh. statement there. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In his next letter to the Corinthians, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In his letter to Philippians, he said, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And then his letter to Thessalonians He says, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And we covered a few of them here. So just for a visual in the letter to Colossians, I highlighted in yellow these themes about... um, death and life or light, and then in pink, these points where Paul talks about the fullness of God or demonstrates. So he, as you can see, he covers the themes pretty heavily in the middle section, but he references them a few times. Uh, Specifically, he tells us we've been enabled to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light because he's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. In his poem, he says, God in all fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through God reconciled everything to himself. He has made peace with everything in heaven and in earth. He's, he's united the two realms again. He says that he's participating in the sufferings for his body, that Christ lives in you. Christ lives all, in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. And then he continues, you are complete through your union in Christ. You were buried with Christ. You were baptized. And with him, you were raised to new life. He says, you were dead because of your sins, but Christ forgave all our sins. He made us alive in Christ. He disarmed the spiritual rulers, and I love this verse. (coughs) These rules are only shadows of the reality to come. Christ is that reality. You've died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of the world. So why do you keep following the rules of the world? 
You've been raised to new life with Christ. Set your sights on the realities of heaven. You died to this life. Your real life is hidden with Christ and God. Put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised. He continues the list. He says Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. And then he reminds us God chose you to be the holy people he loves. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives, and remember that the master we are serving is Christ. In 1 Corinthians, um, he's, uh, actually, I'm sorry, I covered those already. So to get back to my thought, when I read these verses, that, that message about Paul completing what was lacking in Christ's afflictions, breaking that kind of thought process, is that I've been looking at it the wrong way. The way I've pictured this concept of the fullness of God is an understanding that as a follower... I'm not supposed to do certain things. I'm supposed to do certain things. By doing those, I advance in my maturity, which is accurate, but also always still holding a little bit of the, the concept that that's how I earn my place. Um, and I think that was always rooted in a place where I'm thinking of myself. So I know Jesus saved me. He forgave me of my sins. I'm redeemed. And now I should do things that are good. But if I choose not to, because let's be clear, if, we've, if the spiritual powers of the world have been defeated, as we just heard, if we're not subject to them, if Christ really did defeat sin and death, if I sin, it's because I'm making a choice to do that. Whatever all of the other, other factors, I think I need to be honest and say, I chose to do this. So I can see that here maybe is the standard. This will be me following completely close to Christ, walking a step of the Spirit, but if, you know, if sometimes I just come up to here, well, I'm the one who's, who's losing out. I'm the one who's not being filled. I am experiencing the emptiness. And so, okay, I know that I'm already saved. I know that I'm secure in my salvation. So I'll just have to live with that. And maybe I'll do better next time. And I realize that's the mindset that I lived in. But Paul's words here challenged me to think of this differently. Um, as we grow in maturity, we recognize our actions do have impact on the people around us. They do affect the people around us. Um, so that's part of it. But I think the next thing to understand is if Christ was the fullness of God represented on earth, if he was the emissary, the ambassador to earth, um, and now he's left and given that role to us, if Christ, if God himself has chosen to express himself in this world through us, which doesn't really make sense to me, but if you read the creation story, we understand he created the heavenly realm and the physical realm, and then he created spiritual beings and physical beings, <coughs> humans, and he delegated authority to rule and order and represent him in those spaces because he is relational, because he desires to share in his creative power and his joy and his, his vision for the world. And so if, if God has chosen to do that, and if God has chosen to express himself in the world today, through us, now the fullness of God, the fullness of, of Christ is something different because if I'm making a choice to step and separate myself from the Spirit, to be out of step with Him, I'm denying Jesus the full expression of life that He intends to have in this world. I'm denying Him these hands to do the work that He wanted done. I'm denying Him these lips and this tongue to say the words that he wanted spoken. I am denying him 
access to the world in the way that he's chosen to use it. I am choosing to limit God's presence in this world. And when I look around, I kind of ask the question, what, so I've talked about it before. I think one part of, of answering the question, why do, good thing, why do bad things happen to good people? In a lesson that I covered before, my answer is, well, what good people? There aren't any good people. There was one good person, and he was punished severely, so why should I feel like I'm unfairly punished? So that might be part of it, but I think let's, let's ask ourselves. All of these letters, recognizing they were written to believers who were following Jesus, and God has chosen to, rep, to present himself through his priests, through the followers of Jesus in this world today, and believing today that there are more followers of Jesus alive in the world today than there probably have been in all of history combined with the world's population. Hundreds of millions, maybe a billion. Then where, why is the world dark? Where does the pain come from? We can't point to the people of other faiths. We can't point to the people without faith. We can't point to the people who are still dead to sin and say it's their fault because how can they produce good? Everything that they're going to touch and create, just like we did when we were dead in sin, is going to be corrupted by sin and death and failure. Everything that we touch will be a shadow of reality. So if we're pointing to the world and saying they're the reason the world is suffering, I think that we're short-sighted. Why is the world suffering? Because God's presence is not complete in the world. And why is God's presence not complete in the world? Because I've said, Jesus, I don't really want you to be here today. I don't want you to be this part of my life. I want to limit your presence in the world. So why is God's presence lacking in the world? I think that it would be very good for us to look at ourselves and say, we are the ones who can bring God's presence. We are the ones who represent it. In Matthew 25, I'll paraphrase a story that Jesus told, a parable. In that previous transactional view of the fullness of God in a relationship with God, this, this parable, I think, really helps me understand. So there was a nobleman who was about to be called away to another, another uh, realm to receive kingship, to be given a crown and titles and possessions and to become a king. And before he left, he called up three of his servants, three of his, his advisors and managers over his estate. And he said, listen, you're proven advisors and managers of my estate. You know how I run my estate. You understand my business. Here's what I'm going to do. To the one on his right, he said, I'm going to give you, and it was five talents in the story. A, a talent was about 20 years of wages. Um, so in the Roman Empire in that area, so that, Today, in our median income in the United States, that'd be about $1.4 million for a talent. So to the one on the right, he said, I'm going to give you $7 million of my assets. What I want you to do while I'm gone, I'll be away for a while, is I want you to do business like I do business, just manage it and make it grow. And then to the, to the next manager in the middle, he said, you've also proven yourself well. I'm going to give you two, just under $3 million of my assets, and I want you to take it and work and grow it and I'll get the report when I return. And then to the manager on his left, he said, you're young, but you're ambitious, you're intelligent. I'm going to give you $1.4 million of my assets, and I want you to take it and grow it, and I'll get the report when I come back. So these managers set to work. The nobleman left. Years later, he came back, and he was now a king. 
He, was a, he had a crown. He had possessions and titles. And he came back and called his managers to account. And the story that was told for the first manager, let's just imagine that he said, I took the $7 million that you gave me, and I know that your estates in this region run really well, so I bought more property, and I hired laborers and farmers, and we planted vineyards, and we produced quality grapes, and that $7 million is now worth $14 million. And the king said, well done. It's like, I'm going to make you a ruler over many cities because you've proven yourself. To the middle um, servant, he heard the report, well, I didn't have quite as much. It was hard to buy property, but I bought some ships. I bought some fine fabric, and I hired some merchants, and we produced a great trade on the sea, and that, that just under $3 million you gave me is now worth just under $6 million. He said, well done. You're going to rule a city for me. Then he came to the last servant, said, I gave you $1.4 million. Tell me what you've done with it. And the last servant, what he had done when the nobleman left, and said, I know my master. He is a harsh man. If I lose one penny of this fortune, he will beat me to within an inch of my life and throw me in prison. And, and, and what's more, why should he go off to another kingdom and come back with more money than he had? Doing nothing. I will not serve a master like this. I will protect myself so in the middle of the night, I think, looking around, making sure that no one saw him, he loaded the million dollars of precious metal into a cart, pulled it behind the ox, out onto the hillside where he found a secure place under the rocks, and by himself he spent all night digging and hewing and hid it under a rock and made sure it was secure. He probably snuck out there several times a week to make sure it was still safe. And he said to his master, he was thinking, I couldn't, I couldn't risk this in property and farms. What if a drought came and I lost the grapes? Then you'd beat me because I lost some of your fortune. What if I purchased ships in a trade and those ships sank or were taken by pirates? Then you would beat me because I lost your fortune. No, I buried it under a rock, and I can guarantee you every single penny you gave is right there. $1.4 million, you can have it back. And that's the life I think that I lived when I pictured the fullness of Christ. I need to make sure that I protect every penny so that I don't fall astray. When we've been given an immeasurable gift, and if we know the master, and we know that he is not coming back to whip us and beat us for our failures, that's the liberty I believe that Christ is trying to teach, is the liberty that's in this parable. That you know your master, he's given you an immeasurable wealth, and you are free to try to grow it. And you know that if a famine comes and your crops wither, He's going to put his arm around your shoulder and say, you managed it the way I wanted it done. And that's okay. Because I have more wealth than you can imagine. <laughs> and we understand and we know our master. We live differently. Here's what Jesus in his parable said happened at the end of that story about the servant who didn't lose any of his fortune. Who protected it very well. Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. From the, but from the one who has not, even, take, uh, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, We have these promises, beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 
In 1 Timothy, Paul wrote, As for you, man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so I see if, we live, if, I, if I'm going to live in that fullness, I'm going to chase after that liberty to do what God wants me to do, for my hands to be working, to be pursuing the growth and the expansion of his gift, proving, him, uh, proving that he was right in giving me this gift. I, I see, so there's a large portion of the church today, and I think even the evangelical movement has, for a long period, gotten lost in one detail of faith. That we preach, and I think in my spiritual life, I've grown and lived entirely in the moment of salvation. Say, Jesus saved me from my sins. I've been forgiven from my sins. Well done. And we've lived where this first servant is with that precious treasure hoarded under a rock, fearful of losing it. And we live in that debate over whether or not this sin will be acceptable or this thing is okay or I have liberty to do this. And I feel like if we live in that place where we're, we're straining over the salvation, over whether or not we're making it in, I feel like we've become people who, who want to live under the city walls of God's new Jerusalem. We want to be under the protection of his archers and his soldiers by the gate, but we don't want to come into his city and be a part of building his kingdom. And I think we live in this place where we're, we're so excited and we live our whole focus that we know we've been saved from death. But that is such a small part of the story. In another one of Paul's letters, he goes out his way to say, I thought that we would be talking about more mature and advanced things, but I still have to explain the basics to you. He was frustrated by their lack of spiritual growth. And I think he would say, Justin, I'm frustrated by your lack of spiritual growth because it's not about you. This is, you were bought with a price. Your life is not your own. And if I am focused on being saved from death, it's all about me. And that's the first step, and it's a necessary step, but to live there, only concerned about what you've been saved from, and then to wash your hands and, be at, and just live at ease is not what the apostles have called us. We are not to be saved. We don't live saved from death, but we've been called to something. We've been called to all of these other things that Paul and the other apostles have talked about. We've been called to live in fullness of God. We've been called to allow him to take over, allowed him to be in us. Allowed, we're called to live for him, and not in the sense that I'm doing things on his behalf, but literally, I am expressing his life through my being. We are called not to be saved from death, but to be called to his service as his priests and as his representatives. We've been called into his kingdom, and... I just pray that we can take that parable that Jesus gave and match it with the other thoughts that we've covered today and realize that the battle has been won. We've been called to live a new life, different from our former lives when we lived in sin and death, and to know that we have the liberty to try. We have the liberty to grow the fortune that Jesus has given us and to fail sometimes at doing it, always knowing that that treasure will be renewed. We hear the story, we know the scripture about God's mercy made new every day, about his abundant grace. I feel like 
If this was a literal story, I feel like those managers, if they had a drought and they lost a million dollars, I feel like the generosity of God would have just been there. And it wouldn't have surprised me if they woke up the next day and a million dollars was laying on their doorstep. So in the metaphor, that's really what life in Christ is. The wealth never runs out. He always has more for us, and we have the freedom to chase it. I'm just going to read that one section in Colossians, uh, verse 1 through 17, as we close today. Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Since you have been raised to new life in Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you have died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of the world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts, and whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God, God the Father.